Again, good morning. If you would, uh, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Give you a second turn there. If you would, uh, read along with me. Again, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. There we Father. God, once again, we come to this important text, Lord, this uh, part of Exodus where you're speaking to your people from your own voice, Lord. God, we come to this important commandment that really is foundational to all the law, all the commandments, Lord. God, I pray that this morning as we go through what worship is and we look at what it means to be a worshiper and we look at Israel and look at how they failed in, in their false worship, Lord, and how you brought life, Lord, in the new covenant. God, I pray that we, through this sermon, examine our hearts, Lord, and see where we worship other than you, Lord, where we put something of above you, in front of you, Lord. And God, help us to repent from that, to turn, and to turn to you, Lord. I just pray that you're with us this morning, in your son's name, amen. Once again, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first and most fundamental commandment. It's really simple. In fact, it's very short. You shall have no other gods before me, but it's profound. Really, to understand the meta narrative of Scripture, and that's a word we should be familiar with meta narrative, just meaning large story of Scripture. What is the large story that connects all the different books within Scripture? To, to understand the large story of Scripture, you have to understand this commandment and why it's so significant. It's foundational. And it's foundational because it deals with worship. And worship, it's at the core of who we are as man. God made man to worship. We are worshipers. My goal today is really to show the significance of worship and how false worship, worship of other gods, again, the first commandment, you shall not have any other gods before me, worship any other gods, how false worship has led mankind to death and how true worship is connected to life. And I want to do this by looking at the people of God, Israel, and looking really at the history of Israel that we see in the Old Testament and how it points us to the New Covenant, the New Testament. So I have three points of the sermon this morning. The first point is this. Israel's false worship led them to death. Again, Israel's false worship led them to death. The second point is God's promises life to Israel. And then finally, we'll, we'll see this last point, and it's this. You know the heart. You know the heart and what it worships by its fruit. So the first point this morning is Israel's false worship led to death. And if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. This is the calling of Isaiah. It's a very familiar passage to us and to most. Uh, we, we spend most of our time in the first part, uh, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, which is this vision that Isaiah has within the temple of God. This is hundreds of years after the Exodus. This is hundreds of years after the commandments were given at Mount Sinai. And we're going to start in verse 8, which is the calling of Isaiah after this famous vision. It says this in verse 8, And I, that's Isaiah, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? The triune God is asking, Who will go to my people and speak on my behalf? And this is Isaiah's response. He says this, Then I said, Here I am, send me. In other words, Isaiah says, I'll go. Send me. Now, the next two verses after this, Isaiah 6, verse 
verse 9 and verse 10 are really significant verses. They're extremely important. In fact, in the New Testament, they're quoted seven times and alluded to many times by Jesus and the apostles. The New Testament authors see these two verses as extremely significant. So listen to verse 9. It says this, and, And he, that's God, he said, Go and say to this people, Right. This is what I want you to say, Isaiah. Now listen to this. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Then verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In other words, Isaiah, go. Go prophesy, go preach, go proclaim truth, but the people will not hear you because they have ears that cannot hear, they have eyes that cannot see. Now, that's extremely important, as we'll see in a second here. They have ears but cannot hear, they have eyes but cannot see. Look at verse 11. Then I says, Isaiah, he, he speaks back to God, he says, how long, O oh Lord? In other words, how long do I have to do this? Because think of this calling. He's called to go and preach to people that are not going to listen to him. In fact, as a preacher, you get some criticism in the email on Monday morning, and it, like, really devastates you. You can imagine just going and preaching and had everyone criticizing you and mad at you and not wanting to talk with you. And so he asked, how long must I do this? And this is the response. And he said, until cities lay waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. In other words, until Judah is in exile. Laid waste. Until the land is a desolate waste and God removes the people, God's people from the land, removes the people far away takes them out of the promised land, exiles them out of the promised land. Just like God exiled Adam and Eve out of the garden. Now, if you would, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25. And we're going to be jumping around a lot this morning. Because I, I want to show you in Deuteronomy, this is, again, hundreds of years earlier. This is when Israel was still in the wilderness. They're about to cross into the promised land and And Moses is reflecting on everything they've learned in the wilderness and the Ten Commandments that was given to them. This is hundreds of years earlier where God warns Israel that this is going to happen. Again, Deuteronomy 4 verse 25 says this. When when you father children and children's children, in other words, generations from now, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, in other words, if you worship false gods, if you break the first commandment, and really the first and second commandment, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, verse 26, I call upon heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. In other words, exile you out of the the promised land. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Again, this is a warning to Israel. So promising or crossing into the promised land. Now listen to verse 28. And there, as they're scattered in the nations, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Now this is interesting because this is very similar to Isaiah 6, but in Deuteronomy Who can't hear or see? It's the false gods. The gods that are made by human hands, they're made of wood and stone. They can neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now this is a 
common description of false gods. We see this in both the Old and New Testament. Let me just give you a couple examples. Psalm 115.5 says this, They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. In other words, these images that are made of, of stone and wood. Right? They're physical. They have physical mouths and eyes, but they're not living. They can't see with those eyes. They can't speak with those mouths. They can't hear with those ears. We see a very similar thing in Psalm 135, 16. It says this, They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. We see this in the New Testament too. Revelation 9, verse 20 says this, Worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. These idols, in other words, these false gods that Israel and the peoples of the, the nations worship, right? even though they have eyes and, and ears, physical eyes and ears, they cannot see, hear, walk, smell, talk, or eat. In other words, they are dead. They're not real. They're not living. Now, here's what's interesting, because when we get to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, these extremely important verses that are quoted by Jesus himself and by the apostles in the New Testament, talking about the generation that they're a part of, right, the culture that was outside of, of Jesus within Jerusalem. This is what it says, verse 9, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In other words, you have ears, but you cannot hear. You have eyes, but you cannot see. In other words, God's people that Isaiah is going to go proclaim truth to is physically alive, but just like the idols they worship, they're spiritually dead. They can't hear or see. In other words, Judah has become the idols like the idols they worship. They've become the image of the idols, the lifeless idols that they worship. Instead of what they were called to do, instead of imaging the living God, they're imaging lifeless gods. Turn with me to Psalm 115, verse 4. Psalm 115, verse 4. In verses 4 through 7, what we're about to read, this, this is a description of the false gods of the nations. Again, this we see this throughout Scripture, this the description of false gods and idols. It says this in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. In other words, they're not real. Man has made these idols. They, they, they're physical. You can see them. They look like something. But they're not living. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, they do not speak, which will be extremely important when we get to the second commandment. These false gods, in other words, are dead. They're not alive. They don't speak, see, hear, or smell. They're completely lifeless. And then we get to verse 8, which is such a key verse. It says this, Those who make them become like them, and so do all trust in them. In other words, those who worship these lifeless gods become like them. Dead. Now this is a, a profound truth, and again, we see this throughout Scripture. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Therefore, idolatry brings death, it brings the inability to hear, it brings blindness. False worship brings death. This is why in Isaiah 6, God's people have ears, just like their idols. They have ears but cannot hear. They have eyes but cannot see. 
they became like the idols they worshipped. Dead. Spiritually dead. And this is the story of Israel. In fact, if you want to understand the Old Testament, right, this is most of the Old Testament. Israel was saved from Egypt. This is where we are in Exodus. Israel was saved from Egypt. They were promised a promised land. They were given a promised land. But when they went into the promised land, they started to worship false gods. They broke the first commandment. And because of this false worship, they were exiled. This is what we see in Isaiah 6. They were exiled. They were kicked out of the promised land, just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They, they ended up in a foreign country, slaves, just like they started in Egypt. Slaves because they broke the first commandment. Right? They broke the covenant. So the first point of the sermon this morning is that Israel's false worship led them to death. But here's the good news. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, God promises spiritual life. And so this brings me to the second point this morning. God promises life to Israel. If you would, turn to Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Israel and Judah, they have been exiled because they've broken the covenant. They've broken the first commandment, right? the fundamental commandment. Don't worship false gods. There shall be no other gods before me. But in Jeremiah 31, 31, we see the grace of God and a promise of God. It's a very familiar passage. Again, let me read it. Verse 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Again, they broke the first covenant. They broke the, the law. God is promising a new covenant. Verse 33 says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31 is a promise. It's a promise of a new covenant where God will restore his people, bring life to this people. Right? How will he do this? Well, there's three I wills. I hope you notice three things God says I will do. The first one is I'll put my law within them. Instead of the law being external, it'll be internal. It'll be within them. In fact, he says, I'll write it on their heart. That's the second I will. Instead of writing the law on on tablets, stone tablets, God says in the new covenant, I will write it on their hearts. And the result of this is the third I will. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, this heart change that will happen in the new covenant will lead to worship of God. I will be their God. This is what the new covenant promises. Again, instead of writing the law on tablets, in the new covenant, God will write it on people's hearts. Listen to this. God will take the dead heart of stone. Why stone? Because they worship stone images. He will take the the heart of stone and circumcise it in the New Testament. He will bring life to it. He will make the heart flesh. And this new heart will produce godly worship. Turn with me now to Ezekiel 36, verse 16, because we see this promise over and over again in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, verse 16. says this in verse 16, the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, and this is the word of the Lord, it says this, it says, son of man, verse 17, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. how they defile it? What was their ways and deeds? Well, ultimately it was false worship. They worshiped false gods. Well, I want you to hear 
what God thinks about idolatry. Look at the end of verse 17. It says this, Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Now that's pretty clear. It's almost embarrassing to read, to be honest. It's, it's graphic and harsh words that God has towards false worship and idolatry. And you have to ask your question, why, why such graphic and harsh words? Why is the first commandment such a big deal? Well, I, I just want you to think about it. If you, you think of the history uh, of Israel, right? idolatry led Israel to all types of satanic practices. Orgies, drunkenness, prostitution, child sacrifices, mutilation of the flesh. Listen, when you break the first commandment, when you start to worship other gods, it leads to all types of sin. It leads to all types of evil. The first commandment is foundational to the next nine, and we've been talking about that the last few weeks. One commentator put it this way. We never break the other commandments without breaking the first. Whenever you sin, listen, you are worshiping something other than God. And the opposite of that is true, too. Whenever you're worshiping God, you don't sin. Therefore, God hates idolatry. He hates false worship because false worship brings death. It brings murder. It brings adultery, rape. It brings child sacrifice. It's evil. And it brings evil. So look at verse 18. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land. And idolatry brought murder. For the blood they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. They were exiled, in other words. They were kicked out of the promised land. Well, look at verse 22. In verse 22, we see the grace of God. But what's surprising about this is the motivation for that grace. Look at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. In other words, Israel, I am tired of you dragging my name through the mud. I'm tired of you breaking the third commandment when we get there. And because of that, I'm about to act. And God's actions is grace. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 24. Just pay attention to the, all the I wills, what God is going to do, how he's going to act. Look at verse 24. It says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from, your, from all your or idols, I, I will clean, or cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. This is just like Jeremiah 31 over and over and over again. God says, I will, I will, I will. This is what I'm going to do. Right? God is going to act. He's going to cleanse Israel from their, from their uncleansiness. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to change their heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And this is the promise of the new covenant. If you would turn to chapter 37 now, because I love chapter 37. Right? In this chapter, this is an analogy, a parable. It's, a, it's an illustration I don't use very many illustrations in my sermons. I'm just not a good storyteller. I'm just thankful the Bible has amazing illustrations, so I just use it. God gives an illustration of what he just promised 
to the people of Israel in chapter 37. He says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he laid, or led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of this valley, and behold, they were very dry. I just want you to picture this. Isaiah gets this promise, and then God brings Isaiah to some kind of vision or dream. It's this valley, right, that, that he's having this dream or vision. And, and he takes him to this valley, and this valley is just full of dry bones, right, human bones. Just, just picture that, a valley of, of a ton of human bones. In fact, they were very dry bones. Listen. You can't get more dead than very dry bones. You you just can't get more helpless than that. God's making the picture extremely clear here. The spiritual condition of Israel was dry, dead bones. You know, that was true of us, too, before God brought life to us. I just don't think we understand what we were saved from. It's also true about the culture around us. We're so shocked at the things that are happening around us, but spiritually dead people acting like spiritually dead people shouldn't be surprising to us. The Bible doesn't say that the unsaved is almost dead. It says that they are dry bones in a valley. You don't even know which bone should go to which bone. Verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, God asked this question, so I dare not say this is a dumb question. But if a human came to me and looked at dry bones and said, Can those bones live? I would say it's a dumb question. (laughs) Of course not. There's no medical technology, there's no medicine or vaccine you can take to make dry bones have flesh and live. They're dead. But Ezekiel has faith. And his response is actually, I think, so incredible. He says and, and answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. He doesn't think this is a trick question. In other words, he says, God, you can do anything. If you want these bones to live, they'll live. Verse 4. Then he said to me, think about this. He, he, he told Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them. In other words, go preach to bones. <laughs> go proclaim truth to dry bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, just think about that for a second, how ridiculous that is. This is our calling when we go out and proclaim the good news to our culture. Ezekiel is told to speak to dry, dead bones and tell them to hear. Dry, dead bones, hear the word of the Lord. And say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear. Hear truth. Hear the word of the Lord. And how are these bones to hear? Well, they can't. Bones can't hear. And I want you to think about that because this is very familiar, very similar to Isaiah's calling. Isaiah was called to proclaim truth, to prophesy to Judah, prophesy to God's people who can't hear, who can't see who are completely spiritually dead like dry bones. Ezekiel was called in this vision to speak, to proclaim, to preach to bones. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. This is what he is to proclaim. Behold, he's speaking on God's behalf. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put 
breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, go proclaim that you're going to give them life. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, in other words, as, as um, Ezekiel came and proclaimed truth, was preaching the good news that they were going to live, as he was doing that, behold, as he was doing that, verse 7, it says this, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Now, there's a play on words we don't see in English here, but in Hebrew, the word wind, breath, and spirit, it's all the same word. So breathe into them. They, they breathe. The four winds, O breath, breathe. Those are all the same word. Verse 10, it says this. So I prophesied, and as he commanded me, the breath or spirit or wind, right, the spirit came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You know, I'm not going to say their names, but we just prayed over two of our cross-cultural workers. And we're sending them to half a million people that are dry, dead bones. And they're going to go and proclaim the good news. And our hope and our prayer is that one day there will be an exceedingly great army that comes from those people. It's a crazy vision. God's going to explain what it means. Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Again, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. In other words, God is promising Israel that one day he's going to bring life to Israel, that they are dead and one day he'll bring life. He, he makes this very clear in verse 12. Look what it says in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and I'll raise you from the grave. What's that sound like? God did to Jesus, right? Oh, my people, and I'll bring you into the land of Israel and, I'll, and you shall know that I am the Lord when, you, when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, oh, my people. And I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I'll place you in your own land. You shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. God is promising his people life. He's promising Israel life. Again, false worship brought spiritual death. God is promising a new covenant where miraculous spiritual life will be found. This leads me to my last point this morning. You know the heart. So important. You know the heart. You know what the heart worships, in other words. You know the heart by its fruit. You know the heart by its fruit. If you would, now turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. All the passages that we covered this morning are really the, the background. They're the context of this passage, Isaiah 6, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 through 37. They're the context of John chapter 3. And when you understand the context, John chapter 3 becomes a, a very important passage in Scripture. In fact, I think it's very misunderstood because we don't understand the context. We don't understand the Old Testament. But look what it says in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. And let me just stop there. His name was Nicodemus, it says. This man was a Pharisee. And in other words, he was an expert of the Old Testament. He probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. He knew the Old Testament probably better than any of us, in one sense. He's an expert of the Old Testament, a ruler of the Jews, and, and Jesus knows this. 
So when Jesus talks to this man, he, he knows that the person he's talking to understands the Old Testament, and so he's bringing in a lot of Old Testament context in this conversation. So look what happens. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Let me say, I think this was a genuine interaction, even though he was a Pharisee. He came at night because he was embarrassed to come. He didn't want his Pharisee friends to see him, meaning this was genuine. He had a, a, a sincere question he wanted to ask Jesus. He came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, which is a name of respect, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things, these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now listen to Jesus' response. Before Nicodemus can even ask a question, Jesus answers him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is interesting. And I believe there's a clear connection here to the Old Testament. Again, he's talking to an expert. He knows that this guy would pick up on it like that. He doesn't say, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God here. He'll say it later. But what does he say? can't see the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 6, 9, this passage that Jesus would go back to over and over again, right? That, that, that God's people, the Israelites, which is Nicodemus, had eyes but cannot see. They keep on seeing, but they do not perceive, right? Man's idolatry, in other words, man's false worship has brought spiritual blindness, spiritual death to the point that one can't even see the kingdom of God without life, without being born again. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, most commentators at this point say that Nicodemus was just really confused here. I don't think that's the case. I don't think Nicodemus was confused at all. In fact, I think he, he knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Remember, this is a, a really intelligent guy who, who's well-versed in rabbinical teaching, which uses analogies all the time. I mean, that's how Jews taught with analogies. He knew this was an analogy, and he was using the analogy to speak back to, G, to, to Jesus. He understood. Jesus was saying, spiritual birth is like your physical birth. I mean, think about that for a second. Think about your physical birth. Do you remember your physical birth? That's, that's a, yeah, you can laugh at that. No, you don't, right? What did you do to be born, in other words, your physical birth? Nothing. Physical birth happened to you. You didn't pick when, where, or to whom. You did absolutely nothing. Birth happens to you. And, and that's Jesus' point. He's saying, Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do. There's no works. There's no good deeds, Nicodemus, to get you into the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do to be born again. Remember what God said to Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. Over and over and over again, God said, I will, I will, I will. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And does that sound familiar? It would have to Nicodemus. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, those phrases water and Spirit would have reminded Nicodemus of it. Ezekiel 36. One of the I wills is this. In verse 25, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols I will cleanse you. In other words, idolatry brought death. It brought the stain of death and I'm going to cleanse you. And then it says this in the very next verse, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and I will and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone and, and your flesh and I and give you a a heart of flesh, in other words, life, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. There's a connection here between these passages. Again, look at John 3, chapter 3, verse 5. 
Again, Jesus says, he answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, you should know this. You know your Old Testament. There is nothing you can do to be saved. You must be born again. You need spiritual life. Birth happens to you. Nicodemus was a legalist, so this just doesn't compute. In a legalist mind, it's what we do that earns salvation. So he hears the physical birth, and he goes, well, should I go into my mother's womb to get reaped? Is that what I can do? Jesus says, no, there's nothing. Then Jesus gives an, another analogy. It's verse 8. He says this in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. Once again, there's a play on words here. This is connection between the passage in Ezekiel and this passage. The Greek word for wind and spirit is pneuma. It's the same word for wind and spirit. Same exact word, pneuma, wind, spirit. It's a play on words, just like Ezekiel, that wind, breath, and spirit are all the same words in Hebrew. Verse 8, again, it says the wind, or it could be translated the spirit, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. In other words, you never see the wind. Thankfully, it's been windy recently here in Tehachapi. And and you're probably thinking, I see the wind all the time. I blew my trampoline into the neighbor's yard. You don't see the wind. What do you see? The effects. You see the tree moving. You see the, the flags moving. You see windmills going. You hear the sound. You feel it on your skin, but you don't see the wind. You only see the effects. Well, look at verse 8. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Listen, when you share the gospel with someone, first of all, you need to understand you're sharing the gospel to dead, dry bones. How do you know that God brought life to that person? How do you know that 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 spirit is working in that person when you're proclaiming the gospel to that person. Well, you don't see the spirit. You don't see the heart changing. What do you see? You see the effects. You see the effects of heart change. You see repentance and belief, a, a change in a person's desires. You see a change in the person's worship. What's worth the most in that person's life. In the New Testament, there's three main effects that we see that, that are caused by new birth, spiritual life. The first effect is belief. Belief is evidence of new birth. 1 John 5.1 just makes this extremely clear. It says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That translates really well in English, actually. New birth is cause, right? New birth causes belief. Everyone who believes, that's present tense in Greek, has been born of God. That's perfect tense in Greek. What's perfect tense? Well, the perfect tense is something that happened in the past that affects the present. John's being clear that new birth causes belief. Therefore, belief is evidence of new birth. The second effect is a desire to obey him. 1 John 3, 9 says this, No one born of God, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and it cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. It doesn't mean that the born again are perfect. It doesn't mean that Christians are perfect. But there's a desire within the Christian, within the born again, to obey God. There's a love for God. There's a love for his word, a desire to obey it and to obey him. 1 John 5.18 makes this very clear too. It says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Again, evidence of new birth, right? We see this promised in the Old Testament too. Ezekiel 36.27 says, And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. 
there's new birth, the Spirit lives within us, and it causes us to have the desire to obey God. Obedience is evidence of new birth. The third evidence is a love for other Christians. It's a love for other Christians. Let me just say this in personal note. Sunday mornings just energize me. You know, like most pastors take Mondays off. I don't get it because I'm always energized and I just want to get going Monday. Like, I want to start studying for the next sermon. And I'm always like worn out at the end of the week. And then I come together with my brothers and sisters, the body that I love, and I am energized. I'm encouraged. Like, it, it's not a work day for me, and, and I get paid for it, so thank you. But, and I know for many of you, it's the same thing. Like, this is what gets me through the week. There's a love for the brethren. I love you guys, and I see the love back, and it's just encouraging. You know what that is? It's evidence in my soul that I am truly saved. Right? That there's a love for the brethren. 1 John 5, 1 says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, if you are truly born again, you will have a love for God and a love for others who have been born again, for other Christians. Whoever loves the Father, in other words, loves those who have been born of him, who are born again. Again, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, 8, says this, the wind or the spirit blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but... You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. In other words, you just see the effect. You don't see the Spirit. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. New birth, promised in the Old Testament. Because Israel broke the first commandment. They, they served or they worshipped other gods. Israel's false worship led to death. But in the New Testament the new covenant there's a promise that he would bring life to his people and the three effects the three fruits of spiritual life is belief desire for God that leads to obedience and a love for one another a love for the brethren let me just end with this worship worship is at the core of who you are God has made man to worship. Worship is at the core of who you are. We, we think we sin or obey. We, we think obedience and sin as things we do. It's the wrong thought. It's the wrong perspective. In reality, sin and obedience are the effect or the fruit of what we worship. It's the effect of true heart worship or false worship. False worship brings forth sin. Godly worship brings forth obedience. Worship is at the core of who we are. At the heart of false worship is death. At the heart of godly, true worship is life. So here's my question. What do you worship? We all worship something. Let me just ask it in another way. Maybe this will help you figure it out. What is worth the most in your life? That word worship comes from the word worth. It's what you put worth in, worth-ship. What is worth the most in your life? It may not be little idols of stone and wood. We become more sophisticated than that. Our idols are more subtle, like success, your career, money, comfort, sports, sex. They're still idols. They still cause the same sin and ugliness and evil. In fact, child sacrifices, you want to talk about child sacrifices? About 60 million child sacrifices because of the worship of comfort, success, and sex. They were no better. Idolatry can be anything you worship or trust in for ultimate security or ultimate satisfaction other than God. So here's my question. Is there something in your life that is worth more to you than your relationship with God? 
there is, you're breaking the first commandment. And the scary thing is, at the heart of false worship is death. Here's the good news. Promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Jesus, there's eternal life, spiritual life, but it's only found in Jesus. In fact, the first commandment is very exclusive. Inclusive is a very popular term in our culture today, but the first commandment is exclusive. You shall have no other gods before me. In the same way, there's only one way to life. There's only one way to salvation. That is through Jesus Christ. If you haven't put your faith in him, put your faith in him right now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I just praise you and I thank you for the life that you have given me, the spiritual life when I was just as dead as Israel, just as dead as those dry bones in that valley, yet because of your grace, because of your goodness, you brought spiritual life to me, not because I did anything, not because of works, not because of the good deeds that I have done purely out of your grace and love. God, I pray that you give us boldness to go and proclaim these truths just like Isaiah proclaimed truths, but even if people wouldn't hear them, like Ezekiel proclaimed truths to, to a valley of dry bones. Give us the courage to go out and share the good news, Lord. God, and we pray that you would bring Revival that, that you would bring heart change, Lord, to those people within our community, Lord, within our country, within our culture, that we would turn back to you and worship you. And we ask for that in your son's name.